0: This is Father Mark Bulos with The Bible as Literature podcast. People assert and impose an identity from their king, their nation, their city, their tribe, and their family, all of which are dismantled and repurposed in Matthew's genealogy. Now, in chapter 3, on the lips of John the Baptist, we come face to face with this new purpose the adoption of all nations as brothers and sisters under the headship of Abraham. Indeed, the first two chapters of Matthew are summed up nicely in St. John's Pauline admonition that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is
1: Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 236 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Richard. How are you doing today?
1: Good. How are you doing today?
0: Very well. So we have now turned a corner in the Gospel of
1: Matthew. We're
0: heading into chapter 3. And this first part of chapter 3, in some ways, wraps up the first two chapters of Matthew quite nicely. Because now we're dovetailing into... The voice in the wilderness, which is something that Matthew shares in common with Mark. And when we discussed the Gospel of Mark, we saw a link functionally between John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. So we'll see if there's something similar happening in Matthew. But more importantly, in chapter three of Matthew, we have something that we don't have in the Mark and prologue, and that is specific discussion. Around the function of Abraham, not only for the people of Israel, but for the Gentiles.
1: Of course, when we see Abraham, people always think about this as the father of the Jews. Here we see that specifically Jesus is speaking against that point and saying that there's nothing special about the children of Abraham, that the only thing special about the children of Abraham is that God decided that they were special or God decided they were not special. It really is just up to God. And this power of God to create this nation of Israel is furthered through this, because don't forget, in the first two chapters, remember we were talking all about the anti-kingly idea that this is all against human power, and that Jesus was both literally and functionally in Egypt as they moved out of Egypt. And then lo and behold, as soon as they leave Egypt, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's Jesus who is moving from under Pharaoh in Egypt, out of Egypt, to where the people are under God exclusively in the wilderness. And so we have the same motion that continues from chapter 2 to chapter 3 as we would expect from reading the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis through the first half of Exodus, where Joseph's people are then led out of Egypt. Jesus is the new branch. And to the extent that
0: God can produce a Messiah who's not the son of David, but co-opt the Davidic line for his son, Jesus Christ, as his anointed who comes from his seed as the child of the promise, If God can do that, he can raise up children of Abraham from a stone. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in this section. I think the point again and again is that the biblical God can intervene in any situation to produce children through instruction. It's the adoption in Galatians that we're dealing with in Matthew. Adoption is such a critical notion in the Pauline school that you can be adopted as a son or a daughter of Abraham through the hearing of God's instruction. And it's more than the hearing. I don't want to get too dreamy about the meaning of hearing, because you have to hear it and do it. You are proud of your child when your child behaves in such a way that manifests your instruction. And when they do, they are your son or your daughter. If they don't behave the way you reared them to behave, they're not your son or daughter functionally. We place a lot of emphasis in modern times on the biological connection between father and son or father and daughter. But in the ancient world, it was all about instruction and behavior. And that's why in the Roman system of monarchy, if the emperor had a son who wasn't wise, it was not a foregone conclusion that he would be the heir. He could disavow his son and adopt somebody intelligent to be his son and the future emperor of Rome. This is really important for understanding Galatians and the notion of adoption here in Matthew. So as we delve into chapter three, which seems to parallel in some ways the prologue in Mark, which is the next gospel in the canonical syntax. These are important things to think about, Rich.
1: Right. God functions very much as a Roman father, and that's what this is trying to convey, because, like we've been saying before, the whole structure of kingship and rule is being shifted to God.
0: Now... In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here, you know, you mentioned, Richard, the wilderness, and it's hard for me, especially after hearing Father Paul's emphasis on shepherdism, it's hard for me not to think of this one preaching in the wilderness as a functional shepherd who's calling out to gather the flock, to lead the flock, to shepherd them to repentance.
1: Repenting because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, I love how these themes intertwine. We have shepherdism. This is where God functions at his best when he is in the wilderness leading his flock. And the place where we see this happening, I'm gonna keep going back to it, is the Exodus. And it's at the Exodus where God is not just leading his people around. He's leading his people around by giving a word to Moses, and the word is the law that's given at Sinai. So you can't think of Exodus without the wilderness, and you can't think of the wilderness without the law that's given. And so he's saying, repent, turn from your disobedience and the way that you follow your own will as opposed to the Lord's teaching. What he's saying is follow the teaching of the Lord. That's repenting. That's why they have to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is the kingship. The function of the king is going to be placed in its proper position, no longer in this human line that we saw in the first chapter, but it's going to be placed on Jesus. And Jesus is going to have to fulfill the function of king according to God's will, not according to human will or the human understanding of what ruling means.
0: Now, the word repent in Greek, metanoeo, right, it's very easy for us to hear it in a Hellenistic context as though it's about changing your mind. But that's problematic. You have to contextualize the Greek here in the Hebrew. And I'm thinking of, of course, the verb shuv in Hebrew, which means to literally turn and go a different direction. And there's a link in the Greek, not just to this idea of changing one's mind, which if taken in abstraction is what could become Hellenized about our understanding of repentance, but this idea of changing one's purpose. And if your purpose is the commandment of God, the commandment will force you to turn. And it's a very literal turning. I'm thinking, of course, of our work on Jonah, which is all about God forcing. Jonah to turn. That's what repentance is all about. And here the shepherd literally is the voice calling out to the sheep to change their direction to secure life for them. It's really a life or death question. That's why you really don't have a choice as to whether or not you submit to the voice of the shepherd, because in the Syrian desert, if you don't submit, you die for this is the one referred to by isaiah the prophet when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the lord make his paths straight and again it's the voice of the shepherd who creates infrastructure with his instruction the sheep don't know where to walk there's no highway in the wilderness so the shepherd makes a path by telling them where to go. It's just a very simple and at the same time elegant metaphor because of the way it fits into the broader context of
1: shepherdism throughout the Bible. Right. And then speaking about the shepherdism and walking in the paths, you know, we also hear often from Father Paul and we see it all the time in scripture that this idea of walking in the ways of the Lord means being obedient to Torah. So the voice of the one calling is the shepherd, but there's a specific word, a specific instruction that he's giving, and that's what was revealed at Sinai. It's Torah. And so again, we have this vocabulary, we have these images pointing to the law that's given. And we've said a million times, and it always bears repeating, the people were not freed from Pharaoh so that they could be free. They were freed from Pharaoh so that they could submit to the Lord. And submit in what way? In a very specific way. And that's what was written in Torah. So that's what John the Baptist is doing. John the Baptist is trying to remind people to turn back to this instruction that they were given from the very beginning.
0: The commandment, the Torah, the instruction, the written Dabar, not the Hellenistic Dabar. The written word changes your purpose, which changes your path. You don't change. Your purpose is changed for you by the commandment. We tried to stress this last week when we talked about how people don't change. The instruction that controls them changes. And that's really how repentance functions here in chapter three of Matthew. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his
1: waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. When he's living this very simple life, the leather girdle, locusts, and honey, he is not depending on any kind of civilization. A leather girdle is what a shepherd would wear. Why would a shepherd wear a leather girdle? Because he's living off of his sheep. And this is what he's got. He's got what is available to him at hand. He's not depending on the city. And to be eating locusts and wild honey, he's not depending on crops. He's only eating the things that he can find. And this is exactly what God was trying to do in the wilderness of Sinai. He said, okay, I'll give you manna. And then after a while, they're like, yeah, manna's is not so great. We had such good food back when we were in Egypt. And he said, all right, fine. I'll give you birds to eat. And they ate the birds and they had so much they ate until it was coming out of their nostrils. God wants the people, and we see this in Hosea, to be satisfied with what the land produces, what the land provides. But human beings always want to stock up extra just in case. Just in case what? In case God doesn't pull through. But John the Baptist is one who is really willing to live off the land and what the land alone produces. He's in the wilderness where there's only one who can provide for him, and that's God. John the Baptist, just like Israel in Sinai, had to depend completely on God to live. Now, here in Matthew,
0: there may not be an explicit functional link at this juncture between John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. However, it's very clear leading up to verse nine that John the Baptist is imposing the teaching that you find in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins so here as in the case of mark's gospel the people are leaving the city of jerusalem the city that david aspired to when he turned his back on his duty as a shepherd from bethlehem they are leaving that city and they are going out into the wilderness to follow the voice of the shepherd which is the voice of the Torah on the lips of John the Baptist. And it's the district around Jordan, which is technical. You are out in that space which exists between the land of the Gentiles and the land of Judea, right? So it's that place where disciples are made irrespective of their identity. Their identity is subsumed in their baptism, which presents them as a slave of Jesus Christ through the instruction
1: that John is preaching. And they're also following this path, like you say, the Gentiles, the first Gentiles who followed this path were the wise men who came from the east who avoided Jerusalem. When they came to Bethlehem, they avoided Jerusalem on purpose, why? Because the king was there who was going to kill them. Jerusalem is the site of Herod the king. And this kingship is something that already chapters 1 and 2 have built up as problematic. So the fact that Jerusalem is going out to the wilderness is akin to leaving Pharaoh and going to Sinai. I'm just going to keep pushing this because these ideas are so important for how the story flows from one place to the next. It's important that they go from Jerusalem and even Judea to the wilderness. You mentioned Galatians and Paul does the same thing. He stops off in Jerusalem, but he spends his time in Syria and Cilicia and Judea.
0: The gospel is making a direct frontal assault on anyone who would co-opt the scriptural God, to further a worldly cause. And this is a really important cautionary for American Christians. I was listening to the New York Times podcast, and they were talking about the evolution of the debate over social issues in the United States. And the problem began in the 70s, the late 70s, when leaders in the Christian community were collaborating with lobbyists Who wanted to figure out how to tap the Christian vote. This isn't about the issues they were debating or using in order to mobilize a particular block of voters. It's about the distortion of the gospel for a worldly purpose and the suffering it's causing today in the United States, where we have this deep, deep ideological alienation between different camps of people. It's completely and totally antithetical to scripture. It's decidedly Taking the position of the king against the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's sowing the division of identity politics in the name of a teaching that destroys identity with a new slavery to God's anointed Messiah. It's a very serious and dangerous issue. And so I ask all of you who are listening who are tempted to co opt scripture in order to support or drive, or advocate for a certain political point of view, I want to challenge all of you to just stop doing that. If you're hearing scripture, you are hearing a judgment against you that makes it impossible for you to stand up and fight against other people in its name. If you can hear scripture and then get up and talk about what other people are doing
1: and fight against other people on the basis of scripture, then you have not heard scripture to make the paths of the Lord straight in Isaiah is talking to Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon, and the Lord is releasing them from captivity in Babylon. And as we said in chapter two, he's releasing them from bondage under Pharaoh. Herod dies. The Lord is releasing them from the power of Herod. A human being wants to then take the gospel and make it subservient to President so-and-so. It doesn't make sense in the context of Matthew.
0: Let's call it what it is, and let's go on the record, because there's too much at stake. When you take the gospel and make it subservient to any political agenda, no matter how noble you think it is, you are committing blasphemy against the throne of God, because you are building again the things that God is destroying in the gospel of Matthew. You cannot build again the things that God destroys. He is fighting Pharaoh. He is fighting Caesar. He is fighting Alexander the Great. He is fighting everyone who sat on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And how you can take that teaching and then co-opt it to create a new David who's going to usher in some kind of a new fundamentalist vision of how civil order should be. It's very dangerous, and this is the direction the world is going, and something must be said with respect
1: to the urgent clarification that this behavior is anti-scriptural. It's significant that John the Baptist is in the Jordan, that he's baptizing in the Jordan, because this is the border between the wilderness and the land given by the Lord when the people which is the children of those who left captivity enter into the land so that's at the end of deuteronomy and in joshua now they're put to the test because now they have everything they want provided to them will they remain faithful to the word just like adam adam was in the garden where everything was provided for him but he was not able to stay faithful to the word now the people will be put to the test they were in the desert where All they had came from the Lord directly, but now they're going to enter into a land where the land itself produces everything they want. Will they remember that it's the Lord who produces, or will they think that it's the land itself and the work of their hands? And so when the people are given the teaching, given the law at Sinai, it's put to the test once they have everything they want. This is the criticality of
0: the child of the promise in Paul's explanation of Genesis. It's really important, because the promise comes from God. The gift comes from God. And when you turn to a Caesar or a David or a Pharaoh, you are saying you don't trust that promise. And whether you think you can do it yourself with your own hands, or you run off to some foreign king, and any king other than the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a foreign king in scripture. I mean, please understand the metaphor. Anyone who makes himself or herself a king in this life, is a king in opposition to the throne of God. When you run off to such a king and you put your trust and your hope in that king, it's another way of saying, I don't trust that God can do it for us, so either I'm going to do it or I'm going to find somebody else who can. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood, of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Here, we must always remember that the educated, the leaders, the religious teachers, are connected to state power in late antiquity. There was no separation in the mind of the people between the authority of the synagogue and the authority of David, because classically it's the temple palace complex even though jerusalem was occupied by the romans and of course there's that extra added bonus that special literary flair of the new testament that paul himself was a pharisee and that the scriptures were written by pharisees against themselves they present themselves as the chief villains in the same way that the gospel presents christ as the alternative to caesar but presents him as one who is totally emasculated in the eyes of the people so the writers are emasculating themselves and it's pushed to the extreme in the emasculation of jesus and, but again john the baptist does not
1: mince words you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come because the only way they could have gotten this warning is from Scripture. And they're Pharisees and Sadducees, so they're religious leaders. They are supposed to be educated in Scripture. So John the Baptist is saying, oh, well, you must be reading Scripture. You must be understanding that this wrath to come. You have something to worry about. Oh, so you're coming here because you're admitting your sin, evidently. Okay, well, since you're reading Scripture so closely, and since you're coming here to admit your sin, John the Baptist must be happy that these religious leaders are finally coming to admit that they're doing things wrong. So he is eager to see what will come of this initial step, literal step, taken to the Jordan. They're ready to enter into the promised land under the weight of the burden of scripture and that they're ready to follow it. And it's
0: striking here that it is not Jesus who is calling them to repentance. It is not Jesus who will speak about Abraham and the stone in verse 9, it is John the Baptist. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I love this statement, Richard, because it is pure, unadulterated Semitic pragmatism. I will know if you've repented when the outcome changes, and we all know the only way the outcome can change is if your behavior changes, which is what repentance is. It's beautiful because it's a compact statement that says it all with force. The fruit in keeping with or worthy of repentance is a credit to the change in purpose provided by the instruction. So the only role that you have in verse 8 isn't to change your mind and figure out and decide, no. The only role you have in verse 8, as one being addressed by the shepherd who's speaking, who in this case is John the Baptist, is whether or not to obey what he's telling you to do. And everybody will know whether you've obeyed because we'll see whether or not you are bearing a fruit that is indicative of the purpose instilled by the instruction.
1: There's no middle ground, Richard. And I love the word indicative here. It's oxio, so it's worthy. If your repentance is so great, then I should see great fruits. They should correlate with each other. There should be exactly. no fruit. Should precisely reveal the level of your repentance. In fact, they will, whether you like it or not, your fruits are going to reveal it. If there's good fruit, it must be good repentance. If it's bad fruit, it's bad repentance. I mean, it's really a one-to-one correlation, and we'll be able to see. This is such a challenge to the religious leaders, because it's about their repentance. It's not about whether they're looking over everyone else's shoulder and seeing what kind of fruit they have. You are the only one who can show the fruits of your own repentance. And the function of the Pharisee in the
0: New Testament is to illustrate this most critical point, that even if they're preaching correctly, they are de facto hypocrites, like all of us. So it's not enough that they're educated. Now, the Pharisees tend to always have poison mixed in with the milk, and there's something wrong with what they're saying in the story. But even if they were to be correct in their preaching of Torah, they are still shown to be hypocrites. So they have to demonstrate not just that they are knowledgeable like the arrogant in the church in 1 Corinthians, but that they are behaving according to the instruction. It's not enough to be knowledgeable. In fact, it's not what Scripture is asking of us. It's not asking us to be erudite and intelligent, it's asking us to show that we can follow the voice of our master. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And this, for me, is the Pauline spin on the whole section. It's adoption, as we said at the outset, Richard. And it's where the subjugation of identity to slavery to Christ, it's where that subjugation is leading us that since we are no longer a reference, we pertain to the Messiah through our baptism in chapter 3, we have no identity to get in our way. So why would we then start bragging that we're the children of Abraham? Because then you're making out of your slavery an identity to be boasted of, which frankly is how people talk left, right, up and down right now in our culture, religious or otherwise. Everybody boasts of their identity. We are being suffocated by identity politics. People try to claim credibility on the basis of their identity. This is nuts. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, in my mind, Scripture makes the most sense because the only one who can make any claim is God. Everybody else is under judgment. And that's the best way for us to have communion with each other. And again, that's the point about this statement about Abraham. Abraham's function is not to prop up the importance of one group against another. It's to break down barriers, to tear down the wall of enmity that Paul talks about, which is ultimately what the Lord's Prayer is doing when you say God is our father. When you say that Abraham is our father, what it should do to you is make you understand that the Gentile is your brother or your sister because God can make the Gentile a child of Abraham. And when your identity is out of the way, the arrogance of you claiming you're different or better or somehow other than your neighbor, when that is eliminated by your subjugation to the Messiah, as opposed to David, look, David builds up your identity because you have a king and a nation in opposition to other kings and other nations. But the crucified Messiah subjugates your identity to a slavery to his instruction which pushes you beyond the Jordan into relationship with the Gentile as a brother or a sister in the bosom of Abraham, all children of our father in the heavens, which again is what Paul is saying in his famous expression in Galatians when he places the Greek name for father right next to the Aramaic name for father. It's a syntactical statement about the universality of God's fatherhood. And that's Abraham's function in the Bible. It's already there in the Old Testament. The New Testament is simply restating it, that the fatherhood of God expressed in the fatherhood of Abraham is a universal fatherhood, which brings all of us together under one household.
1: There's a thread also going back to Numbers. At one point, the Lord wants to completely eliminate Israel because they're so disobedient. And he says, I'll just raise up another people from your seed, Moses. The Lord is perfectly willing to completely eliminate the people who came out of Egypt and create a new people. But Moses says, oh, but if you do that, then everyone's going to say you couldn't keep these people alive, and therefore they're going to mock you and say that you didn't have the power to keep them alive. So the Lord, in order to save face, had to keep the Israelites alive even though they were disobedient. And this just reminds me of that passage where it says, just as the Lord could raise up an entire people from the seed of Moses, here he can raise up an entire people from the stones themselves. But there's a reason why he keeps the people alive, and it's grace. And it's by no means because of something they did that made them worthy to stay alive. Because the thing is when you say, oh, we're fine, we have Abraham as our father, it's lazy and it's entitled because you didn't have to do anything. You were just born this way, and that's why you're better off than everybody else, which is the height of arrogance. God can produce life from the womb of Sarah,
0: despite Abraham's age and despite her barrenness. He intervened repeatedly in Genesis to secure the continuation of life in order to demonstrate that he could sustain Israel despite Israel's disobedience, to your point, Richard. And here in Matthew, God can intervene to save the line of David despite David's rebellion. And he can create children from a barren stone from among the Gentiles in the same way in fulfillment of his promise ultimately, which was to make Abraham the father of many nations, to make for Abraham a progeny as numberless as the stars of heaven or the sands of the sea. That's ultimately where we're headed here, and it boils down to this critical function in the Pauline Epistles and in the book of Acts, which is the table fellowship with the outsider, which is not possible in a world where people are building themselves up, building again, as Paul says, the things that God destroyed and continues to destroy on our behalf. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton.
1: Thank you very much, Father. Have a great week. Thank you, too.